If you enjoyed podcasts like this, you should check out our other shows on Health Podcast Network. For example, Beyond the Paper Gown, hosted by Dr. Mitzi Crockover, helps people think critically about women's health issues, encouraging them to question and explore the complexities of healthcare systems, scientific advancements, and societal norms. There's a really cool episode that you should check out called Midday Menopause App. And that's about how AI and sensor technology can provide personalized interventions to manage menopause symptoms effectively. Check out Beyond the Paper Gown on your favorite podcast platform or visit healthpodcastnetwork.com. Welcome to Highway to Health. I'm Jeremy Quinby. I hope you're well and acclimating to winter. Uh, we're coming into the darkest part of the year, and in three weeks, we'll be easing back toward the light. Glad to hear from so many of you this past week. The conversation I had with A Chance to Grow seemed to have some impact. While the focus of the conversation was more on childhood development, I think just about everybody can look back at their childhoods to points where they struggled and probably didn't get resourced very well. And I like to think that it's getting better, but change in awareness and understanding comes slow. I have a, a, a email to share that I received this week from Drew in Dallas, Texas. It says, Hey, Jeremy. Thanks for continuing to do, to do this podcast. I got turned on to your podcast a few months ago. A lot of what your guests talk about really seems to really, really resonates with me. Also, I lived in New York for eight years, so I love to hear New Yorkers on the podcast. And I've been in Minneapolis a few times for work. It's a really cool city. I've been meaning to write you to tell you how much I enjoy these conversations for a while. This past week's episode really hit me hard. I have a child who was born with developmental challenges, and she's doing much better at this point. She's 10 years old now. It's been a really tough stretch for our family. My wife and I actually didn't make it through the early years, but are really good friends now. We have both learned a lot about ourselves and about life in general through the process. Your conversation with Bob really gives a glimpse into what it's like to be a parent of a child with developmental challenges. We eventually did find some amazing therapists who have become like family to us. This episode did an amazing job of telling the story of people like us and offered a lot of insight into the process and the kinds of resources available. I also appreciate the consideration Bob talked about with parents. That guy knows, I'm sure. All my best to you, Jeremy, and happy holidays, Drew. Thanks for sharing this, Drew. Um, not, not sure if I've mentioned this in any of the episodes. I may have, but uh, my daughter, Iris, was... Uh, diagnosed with bacterial meningitis at 12 days of age, and we spent a month in the hospital administering antibiotics. And we had some touch-and-go moments, but she's seven and a half years old now, and happy, creative, athletic little girl with a wicked sense of humor. And, uh, you know, but we, d we did have some scary moments in there. And then, you know, for the next three years or so, we still had concerns as well that she might have some delays. So um, having gone through that, I felt like this might be a good topic for the podcast, and I'm glad that uh, many of you felt the same way. Uh, I'm always looking for guests who I believe have uh, in, are having an impact on their community. If you know someone that you think I should have a conversation with on the, on the podcast, uh, please email me at jeremy at highwaytohealthpodcast.com. And if uh, you're looking to give people the gift of better health, consider a monthly donation to this podcast. I started this podcast in part because I wanted more people to, to be better informed about how to build health into their lives. And for 5 to $10 a month, whatever you feel like, you can help this podcast continue to grow and resource more people. We are now bringing quality resource to listeners in more than 25 countries. It only takes a minute. You can go to patreon.com forward slash highway to health, and you can see me in front of the camera explaining our mission somewhat awkwardly. <laughs> I promise it'll be worth your while. My guest on the show today is another one of those people making an impact on her community. If you haven't noticed yet, I'm trying to make a case for a community having a much bigger impact on health than we give it credit for. We all need access to health care, but when it comes to our day-to-day -day livelihood, it's the environment that we're in, and by this I mean not only earth, air, and water, but the places in which we spend our time that might be of an even greater importance to our sense of well-being. Restaurants are places that we go not just for nourishment, but to relax, chill out, meet with our family and friends, and even sometimes the staff become extensions of our family. Sohee Kim is a chef and entrepreneur. She and her business partner and husband, Ben Schneider, have created with their restaurants 
an atmosphere that encourages family and friends to come together. Her food is inspired by her story. Emigrating with her family from Korea to the Bronx, cooking at Blue Hill in the city and Anissa in the village in New York, uh, she finally settled into Red Hook, Brooklyn with her family. Inclusivity is a theme in both Sohi's menu and in the vibe their restaurants have created. I met Sohi about over 10 years ago. We were both starting our businesses in Brooklyn uh, within a couple months of each other, and we immediately hit it off. And maybe because we were born just a day apart in the same year. Not sure. But uh, this is one of the many conversations that I've had with her over the years that somehow seem to keep circling back around to something we both have passions for, food, family, community, and health. She's one of the sweetest, most thoughtful, and funny humans I know. We start out here talking about my recent experience at her restaurant, Insa, in Brooklyn. Please enjoy my conversation with Sohee Kim. There's one entrance to the main dining room, and that is via the long the long, corridor. Yeah, the long corridor. corridor. So you went there first. Yeah. You went through there, yep. and then you looked at the dining room, and then you yep. went to your left yep. and went into the dining space. Yeah. 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 So when we were looking at that space to possibly lease, just one big sort of rectangular squarish room. And when I walked in, I said, oh, my gosh, this is so big. Yeah. It's almost too big, Ben. And he's like, no way. <laughs> <laughs> and then we sort of mapped out, um, but it put, it's sort of still close to what we originally planned. Yeah, and um, and I think it's smart to have that, you know, the left side of the space to be sort of a separate enclosed bar area. Yeah, that not just serves the the dining room and also the karaoke rooms. Okay, but it's its own thing. Yeah, it's, so it, in many ways, it's running it's really cozy feeling in there too. It's like a totally it different. Is. It is. And I said to Ben, I was like, this is your play area in uh-huh. terms of design. Yeah. It's yeah. enclosed and you could do your magic. I, I kind of felt it. like there was a little bend with that room. Too. Oh, not just a little. <laughs> There's a lot. Um, and then, of course, the main dining room, you know, with the 18 barbecue grills. I wanted it very um, communal at the same time, sort of sleek without being annoying. Yeah. Um, just clean. And, you know, you notice there's no tchotchkes. You right. know, it's just right. clean wood, yeah. um, curved wood walls. Yeah. Beautiful, um, you know, lighting on the walls. And uh, in terms of a um, Korean restaurant, it has a really cool vibe because my gripe with Korean barbecue places is like too bright. Yeah. And it's like a little too jank. And you just kind of forgive it because you're there for the food, right? Right. Um, same so, with same with the the Russian restaurants, like the, the, you know that we go to. Even I don't know if you've been to any of those places. There's like one in Queens. There's some down like further into into Brooklyn that aren't that aren't the like Coney Island ones. They're just like the more neighborhoody versions of the Russian ones, but they're. They all have exactly what you're talking about. Sometimes they're just like a little ostentatious. Just, yeah, you know, either that little... or it's a little lackluster. And or, like, or, or that or the, too, and, yeah. and always the lighting little... is is not good. <laughs> yeah, you right. know, you want to feel like you look good yeah. when you're eating <laughs> yeah. to other people. And it has lighting is key, and not just that, but to people's moods as well. Yeah, when they're dining. So, I think Ben hit it just right. Yeah. With the with the design, yeah, um, and of course the karaoke rooms. I'm sad that you didn't get to see them. I know because it really does take take, you know, like a third of the restaurant space in the back. Okay. Uh, oh, five separate big. karaoke rooms, five rooms, and one uh, that could how that could um, accommodate up to 25 people in one Whoa. room, and the other ones are smaller. Yeah. They're like eight to ten max. But it really is sort of a three-in-one operation. You know, the bar, the dining room, and the karaoke. And then, and then you saw the open kitchen to the right. Yeah, yeah. So forty-six hundred square feet, and every square feet is being utilized. And 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 Ben was right. We don't have enough space for everything. Wow. So, so, you know, it's the 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 numbers game in terms of square footage and how it it all gets utilized is is it's key to how yeah, a restaurant yeah. operates. Because you're talking about the flow. You're talking about, you know, need. Um, 
and uh, it just it it's you have to be absolutely organized, no matter what you do, right? But especially in a restaurant. What what's the max of that place, Avinza? In terms of capacity, capacity, yeah. Um, I would say well, there's 85 seats okay. in the in the in the dining room. Um, you could squeeze a few more in with additional chairs, but 85 is what we sort of cap it at. And then in the bar, it's about 40. And in the karaoke rooms, if you do the numbers, it's yeah. potentially 40, 65. So, and so you, I mean, I'm guessing on weekends, sometimes you're at max. Yeah. At, at, I mean, just, just to let you know, um, <laughs> there's five people cooking on the line. The line is sort of the hotline, the yeah, cold yeah. line. Um, and then there's always a chef on in charge that's expediting. So that's six, six person line to service all three areas of the restaurant. And we could do upwards of 450 covers, which means that we could serve 450 dinners, possibly, on a Saturday night. That never happens Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. But it does ramp up to the the weekend. And I think the concept of Korean barbecue really lends itself to like, like let your hair down and just yeah, let yeah. loose on a Friday, Saturday. So it is a weekend place for sure. And you have that thing that you had out yesterday was the or that uh, the the server offered to me, which I had no idea about. Was this hot the for the bibimbap? Was this hot bowl? And I, I had, and she was trying to explain it to me. She's like, "Do you want a hot bowl? Keep the rice crispy and the and hot and all this stuff." And I was like, "Yes." <laughs> <laughs> and it comes sizzling and it it's comes super sizzling hot and it's hot and yeah. i like I, in, a, in a way i sort of ended up taking my time a little bit with it yeah so i sort of picked at it and i yeah. had those other things that came out ahead of it right and right. are you supposed to mix those into the bowl too you can and so this is a sort of the education of you know korean cuisine um you can if you want to some people do it felt right because they're they were kind of cooler yeah and then yeah. you could kind of like mix it oh, in. So you mixed everything together. I mean, I, I was sort of nibbling at that stuff before my food yeah. came, but my food came so fast that I yeah. just was like, yeah. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try some all, all these things. And then once it came, I was like, oh, the seaweed would be good in here. That's right. So throw that in there. And then there's right. in, the, in those, uh, what are they soybeans or something? Soy, they With are soybeans. That, sesame that, seeds? Yeah, soybeans that stewed in, in soy, basically. Yeah. Um, and uh, that's, yes. And so that gives it a little bit like a salty umami. Yeah, sort of flavor. Yeah. So the whole idea of the offering of the side dishes, too. very simple. The offering of side dishes is is very um, traditional. Um, it is they call it side dishes, but it really isn't. It is sort of um, like a hey, this is what we do at this restaurant. So so it's free, quote unquote, um, yeah. and and it's offered to you. You should eat it with the meal that you're about to get, but it's still it's also sort of a sampler, like a, yeah. like sort of like a tasting menu, if you will, from a chef. Yeah. Um, and uh, of course, everybody judges a good Korean restaurant by the quality of the kimchi and 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 these other sort of morsels that you tried last night. Yeah. So it's like a positive, good face forward, and say, okay, this is what you have to look forward to, and it's also um, an instance of the potential of educating diners hmm. into what cr- Korean cuisine is. Yeah. Um, and, and if you ask me like, do you, can you put it all together with the bibimbap? <laughs> I'm like, yes. Yeah. There's no, you know, with Korean dining, there's really no rule. You know what I mean? Because it is so much about communal dining usually. Yeah. And it's about um, different flavor profiles sort of all at once. You know, yeah. it's, we, we are busy people. And in, and historically, we're like, okay, chop, chop. Let's, you know, get the dinner <laughs> on the table and let's just eat and go do about our business. So there is no waiting, you know. Um, but it does, because of that, it, it does lend itself to absolutely a fabulous dinner out with like a big group of friends yeah. so that you can try. Even even when you order a la carte off the menu, you want to share everything. It does drive me crazy when like 10 people come and they all order bibimbap. I'm like, really? <laughs> <laughs> it's, a lot of, it's a lot of hot bowls. It's a lot of hot bowls. Well, that's, what I was, that's what I was thinking. I was like, man, these, I can't, I'm just thinking about like the cleaning of all these things and the storage of all these like, and it's, it's so cool too to look at. Right, right. It is. Um, 
and and Korean people think that uh, rice should be piping hot and soup should be bubbling hot and that's yeah. how it's brought to you. Yeah. Um, but yeah, in terms of maintenance, it's it's quite a bit. So so, how did you get into cooking? Was it was your family like? Uh, were, did did you have a role in the in the cooking process in your house? My role was eating. Yeah. <laughs> First and foremost. Um, but, you know, I do, you know, this new cookbook that I have out called Korean Home Cooking. I do talk about sort of the genesis, you know, of my um, of my role or um, who I have become, which is a professional chef. Um, but when I was younger, I have to tell you, I was an extreme picky eater. Yeah. Um, I did have tasks and chores to do, and some of that had to do with, you know, preparation of food. Um, like for instance, you know, you know, like the snack packs that you give to your children, if you have any, yeah, like yeah. the, the seaweed that's roasted yep. and it, it feels like you're buying whatever, $2 for six pieces of seaweed that's roasted, mm-hmm. but it's all air. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so papery. That, that's right. And that was my job. So before you roasted, it, it's just basically sheets of nori she- yeah. seaweed. And then my job was to you know, dip like, um, a brush into sesame, a blend of sesame oil and, and whatever other neutral oil, and I would brush. It's pretty um, delicate work. Very isn't it? delicate work. Yeah, perfect for like a seven-year-old, right? right. <laughs> and then I would brush the seaweed, and then lightly salt it, and then I would give it to my grandmother, and she would just quickly roast it in a dry pan or sometimes over live fire. Yeah. And we and I would have to stack every roasted piece of seaweed, line it all up. And then cut it up into squares and put it in an airtight storage container that would maybe last about a week. Oh wow! Yeah, so I had chores <laughs> like that, and of course, dumplings is a fun, yeah, yeah. you know, um, process for little children to participate. So, so yes, I participated, and they gave me little fun things to do that way. But in terms of, but being a kid, you didn't love it. No, <laughs> like I didn't, I couldn't care less about the kimchi making process. And I was like, why is everything garlicky and so stinky? And you know, that was my bratty. <laughs> little person uh, attitude about the whole thing at the time yeah you know in hindsight it would have been really wonderful my grandmother's passed away now and i feel like i learned a lot from her in terms of not so much in terms of cooking i think that i owe to my mother um who had the real sort of you know talent gene of of you know producing beautiful amazing food but my grandmother so much uh, uh, you know much so in the way of frugality and how she was a Buddhist, an avid Buddhist, mm. and uh, and she had lived through two, you know, catastrophic, you know, wars. Oh, yeah. And so, in terms of what to preserve, what to save, how not to waste, mm-hmm. um, you know, definitely goes along the lines of her um, religion, of Buddhism, um, waste not, want not. Yeah. Um, so I, it it was amazing, just in my memory, to, to sort of. Um, glimpse at the the thought of her you know pickling things and cleaning things and not wasting anything if we if she planted some sweet potatoes it wasn't just about the sweet potatoes yeah you know the meat of of the plant basically it was about the vine it was about the leaves you know how she composted nothing she like Mm -hmm. really saved dried and found ways and i think that people of that generation who did have to suffer through um you know some heavy starvation mode um it it was fascinating to see her um so i wish i could i I wish i could have taken more notes actually yeah and looking back i know but yeah and 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 our family definitely um is a family that celebrates together and you know there's just and, and i think that you know it's not even just korean culture i think in general you know food is so much about the center of family or relationships mm-hmm. and it's just a focal point and um and I've I've known that even though I wasn't necessarily you know interested in cooking but it was something that was you know it was it's impactful you know where if you don't have nice things to say to each other as family you know at least <laughs> yeah. you could share a meal right, you know what right, I mean? yeah. and talk about the food so it's it's uh it's a connector and uh and and I think that that's how I slowly fell in love with not just food and the art of cooking, but also, you know, um, the business of restaurants. Um, what does it really all mean? What yeah. are we really trying to provide? And I think in the beginning, as a young cook chef, in opening uh, the Good Fork with Ben, my husband, was really um, sort of nostalgic and kind of naive. Like, hey, I know how to cook. Hey, you know how to build 
why don't we open a restaurant? Yeah, I, I was wondering what, like, why you guys ended up deciding to do that. And I think it was this, uh, you know, Ben had been working as a cabinet maker, and he also had aspirations of wanting to be um, an actor. And he loved the theater. He's clearly a creative. I mean, just, very creative. Yeah. So I think, and and uh, when I met him, I was finishing up culinary school, and I was working at all these, you know, fancy fine dining restaurants. And where and did you work? I worked at um, I worked at uh, Blue Hill. Oh yeah, uh, in the Greenwich in Greenwich Village, and then I worked also at Savoy, um, mm. which is no longer around for yep. um, Peter Hoffman, and uh, and Anissa which is also now no more, um, run by, you know, she's my mentor and a good friend that I could say right now. Um, her name is Anita Lowe, and she had Anissa for about 17 years. But mm-hmm. it really sort of started with Blue Hill because it was my first foray into this, mm-hmm. you know, exquisite world of fine dining. And, uh, and the first time that Ben and I went there, when I was actually, I was working as an intern at the time, and Ben's mind was blown and, you know, it just seems so, especially for Ben as my partner, he saw it as such, um, it was like theater. It is theater, you know, yeah. two businesses where the show, no matter what, no matter what hits the fan, the show must go on. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? On true. stage and also in restaurants. Oh, that's really interesting. So I think that he, he got why I was so, you know, enamored with it. And obviously, um, his parents have, you know, they're amazing, phenomenal cooks. So he was raised, always eating good food. And so, you know, in this fine dining sort of like, you know, premium restaurant sort of, you know, world that I sort of opened his eyes to. The TV thing hadn't really exploded yet with TV cooking shows and... No, not yet. But it was close. Like yeah. I think in the early two thousands, you know, all yeah. of that stuff, like Top Chef and right. Food Network, sort of exploded. Yeah. Um, so there was there was growing sort of public interest, and I think for us as two creative people to come together, and um, and you know, it, it wasn't like I went to culinary school and, and I said, okay, let's open a restaurant. I did yeah. sort of work for these amazing chefs and sort of learned, you know, and and sort of wrote down a list of to-dos and, you know, not to-dos, like what to do and what not to do mm-hmm. um, in terms of service, business, food, all that stuff. So I'd taken like minor notes, but we were definitely not ready. Looking back, right? right. Hindsight and always being right. twenty twenty, like what the heck were we talking about, yeah. you know, opening a restaurant? <clears throat> but I think that it was that naivete. Um, feel the passion, for us, and honestly, if we had known more than what we knew at the time, yeah, totally. we wouldn't. Have, we, we would not have done it because yeah. the risk is too high, sacrifice is too much, the hours are long, and the money is never guaranteed. Yeah. Um, but thank goodness we were, I say, stupid enough. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> to open the first one, like thirteen years ago. Yeah. Because. You know, our lives are so shaped by what happened, you know, in March of 2006, which is the opening, you know. And it's funny because yeah. that we we started businesses like we started we opened it doors January 2006. That's so. right. That's right. And when I met you towards the end of that year, or maybe yeah. the year after that. I was like, I get it. I get what you were doing, you know, what you and your partners were doing there. Yeah. And and it's this, you know, it's this whole so, sort of sense of commu- creating community yeah. and uh, um, places where people go to be nourished or welcomed or, you know what I mean? Like there's there's common ground. I saw that with you and your business. Yeah. Um, uh, you a little bit more in terms of healing and nurturing, right? You right. Know? But you know, restaurants could be nurturing as well. But it's but it's uh, food. The, and at the time though, in in Red Hook, there was there wasn't really anything like like a, a restaurant, you know, like that that was like that that sort of had like a, a vibe and had like a very specific menu. Like the the thing about the Good Fork that I liked was that somehow your like Korean cooking influence was in there, but you also had this like. French culinary part and like a little bit of like Ben's Northwoods vibe or something. <laughs> totally. I mean, you know, people were sort of confused and I have to tell you before we opened the doors, you know, we had some critics, you know, some family members and some people who were in the business yeah. like dudes, you got to like focus, 
and think of a concept that is like easy for people to digest. Yeah. So are you a Korean fusion restaurant or are you a seasonal, you know, bistro? Are you an Italian focused, you know? Yeah. And back then labels exist existed and they still do, but I feel like we were very headstrong in saying, you know what, we're not going to put ourselves necessarily in a category because this is obviously a passion project where we really might not know what we're doing, but we feel very strongly that this is how people should eat. And the menu that I designed for the, you know, the opening menu was very globe trotting, right? And that is a word that exists today. And that is a word that is a phrase that has been developing for the past 10, 15 years. And I think the good fork had something to do with that, especially this big movement of, um, you know, talented young chefs coming to Brooklyn and opening up their own thing and not saying it's not about the corporate, it's not about the fine dining, big food groups, you know, that are just operating in Manhattan. So around that time, people got it. Yeah, Red Hook, is it totally accessible and easy to get to know? But it's where we lived, and it's where we thought um, there should be a restaurant like this, where it's small, it's run by, you know, a well-meaning couple. You know, there's a term for that, an old mom-and-pop shop. Right. And I felt like, and I still feel like, um, these businesses are very few and far between, and they it's really hard for us to exist, right? Yeah. Um, but it was what was necessary. So I stuck to my guns and I said, um, it'll just be a menu that if people don't get, they don't get, but why can't you start off with a delicious, you know, plate of dumplings? Yes, that's Asian. Um, and then finish off with like pasta with wild boar ragu that's made in house. Like, yes, that's kind of like confusing, but it is now the way people eat. Um, we're totally open to that, but I'm not going to lie to you and say there was no pushback. Some yeah. people didn't get it. But it's it's food as as art to some extent. Like you're 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 sort of expressing something through the food, and you're 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 creating an environment, and the food is part of the environment. And that's right. And but I get asked these questions a lot, and uh, and even back then, and I would say it's the kind of food that we want to eat personally. Yeah. So it's not so much about catering to a certain demographic or people. Like if we're if we stay true to how we want to eat and how we want to be nourished and how we want to be treated at a restaurant, then you know we're doing something good. Yeah. Because at least even if we don't do it correctly at least it's earnest and it's honest um and i think that that was the magic of the good fork that people really got so even though it was in this in in this neighborhood where red hook brooklyn is is a destination spot and and so the good fork became one as well but you never go through red hook brooklyn to get anywhere you have to want to specifically be there so in opening this restaurant I knew that there was a need for for sort of a local neighborhoody joint um, for the neighbors of Red Hook, but I, I think I knew deep down that if we worked hard enough and the food was good enough, that people would travel to it and that it would become a destination place, and it did. And so and once, it still is, and right. it still is. And once the reviews came in, you know, it's always sort of nice to have your intentions affirmed, you know, with good reviews and, and people get what you're doing. So did the, did the good for cookbook draw any more, um, restaurant people or, you know, foodies to the, to, to it from other places? Cause I imagine people come to New York and are just looking for something very specific right. to go check out. So when we opened in March of 2006, you know, we opened to great reviews, New York Times, lots of local yeah. magazines like Time Out, uh, New York Magazine, uh, New Yorker Magazine. I mean, we got, re- we really rode the wave yeah, of like this that. sort of new Brooklyn cuisine, they called yeah. it. So what that brought was attention. And one of the attention was national, like few of them actually. So I did this, I did this show called Throwdown with Bobby Flay, where he <laughs> challenged right, me remember. on the dumplings. And it aired like two years after we... Um, opened yeah. and then it kept airing so from the time 2006 when we opened to two, you know 2016 when i published the good for cookbook that's yeah. 10 year span which is a long time for a small restaurant to survive um so we sort of survived on those like attention whether it's local or national um the food and um the food network shows brought in 
you know, national people. So if they were coming in to vacation in New York City, like, oh, let's go to that yeah. dumpling lady's place. And, <laughs> and I was like, cool, badge of honor. And it's a cool out of the way kind of quieter. It's, you know, it's it's not the, you know, Manhattan totally. scene or even now like right. Smith Street or <laughs> whatever. Right. So what the Good Fort Cookbook did was, from, that was my intention sort of document. Okay, so even if we say close tomorrow or something, yeah. then we would have documentation that this great place existed and on the, all the recipes will be recorded. Um, but at the same time, it was, a, it was a tool to get people's attention again. Hey, you guys, remember the Good Fork that opened 10 years ago? Guess yeah. what? We're still here. We survived a major hurricane. Mm several steps backwards but here we yeah. are so it became this great narrative um this great story to share with people yeah. that was outside of our family and friend circle outside of the red hook circle that restaurants like this have an amazing stories to tell and hear the stories and hear the recipes so so to answer your question yeah people did notice again and they said oh yeah that place you know because i think the noise and um there's so many restaurants in new york city that it you know you could go to one restaurant new open open newly open restaurant yeah. for like i mean months on end you can't you right. will never exhaust and yourself. some of them have a, a marketing budget and That's everyone right. knows about them That's and, right. and places so you, like yours it's like really hard right. to do so that so that was strategic, but it really, in terms of you know coming out with the book at the ten ten year anniversary mark, it was strategic on my part. But at the same time, was driven um, by this notion of like, oh, we could just perish tomorrow, you yeah. know. Well, I mean, after after Hurricane Sandy, I mean, I I talked to you afterwards, and I I knew a little bit about what was going on. But did you have any idea that like when the when the storm was coming that anything like that could happen did you guys you live like a couple blocks away right so we we, we block we live one block away <laughs> and uh, and and because in red hook you know the geography of red hook is very interesting in that like i said we discussed you don't go through red right. hook if you go through red hook you'll end up in the ocean right, right. <laughs> end up in the harbor um and uh, the topography and being so close to the water, it's flood zone. Yeah. And so even before the big hurricane, um, whenever there was like a torrential downpour or something, like there were pockets of floods oh, is that um, right? here and there. Did you have any in the restaurant? We and and it's it's a wet you know it's it's yeah. a wet terrain basically. So when it when it rains super hard, we would get a little bit of situation. So we have some pumps going, and it's great yeah. that you know my partner Ben is is a whiz at these things, yeah. and he'll just hook it up to to avoid um problems but yeah so so i knew that um about red hook but in terms of do you ever can you ever imagine yourself yeah. you know being a victim of, of a really bad hurricane and honestly i feel like in the in the past decade and a half almost now um since we opened and uh, sandy hit i think 2012 and since then in the past couple of years we've seen some major oh terrible terrible hurricanes that like put sandy to shame you know yeah. what i mean like it's it, it's just colossal and yeah. it's getting bigger and bigger and of course that's tied to the sort of the bigger overall global problem of climate change and yeah. all of that yeah. um so, but yeah, I mean, we didn't expect it was going to be that big. And it was um, like a 12 foot storm surge, it right? It was a 13 to... foot storm surge. Oh and um, pretty much um, the main strip of Van Brunt Street, uh, which is the main drag, and where, that's where, where all the businesses where good are. Fork and that's is. where the Good Fork is. And, and we, we got pounded. And so it was a rebuild. Um, and a lot of businesses folded or they survived. And, but it was tough. And, and, you're, and you're like storage of wine and all, all these. Just, all gone. Yeah. All gone. So, so it was a, you know, it cost us a lot of money um, to rebuild. But thank goodness for community. Yeah. Um, uh, a friend of mine told me there was this thing called GoFundMe, which now everybody knows about, but I'd, I'd never heard of it. And it yeah. sort of launched right around that time and said, listen, people really want to help you. Let them help you. And I was like, well, that's sort of a handout. I don't want to do that. But then, you know, two days after, we're sort of, it's still doom and gloom, and we're still trying to clean everything out, and everything's looking very bleak. I'm opening up mail, and I start seeing checks. People like, writing notes so wow. awesome like very powerful like i got engaged at your restaurant here's 50 dollars to you know put towards rebuilding hang in there and i was like eh, totally oh close to God. tears um 
and it makes me sort of weepy just thinking mm-hmm. about it. But but so my friend said, you have to do it. It's not for you. Like yeah. this now, this restaurant belongs to, you know, more people. It is a property of the community and property of people that have come here, shared memories, and so it is not just you and Ben's show anymore. Yeah. So that was that was a very interesting lesson in sort of um, dealing. Right. Yeah. It's sort of a. It is our problem, obviously, that we have to either rebuild or walk away but people have a say in it because this is now part of the greater community that is outside of us and our family um so a campaign was launched and we raised fifty thousand dollars which was our goal Mm -hmm. just to replace you know the wines and the inventory that was lost in i think three weeks three weeks people gave fifty thousand dollars to this little fund so that we could, you know, it helped. It, yeah. Is it is that the only money that we needed? No, but there were grants that we applied for and then we then applied for a big loan. So we pieced it together. Um, but I'm not going to lie to you, it was tough. But, but, but again, you know, you always make lemonade with lemons and this, yeah. was, this was an opportunity for us not to sort of, not just to fix up sort of the infrastructure of the Good Fork, but also in our understanding of what the good fort means. Yeah, you, you now understood the, the, the community around everything. That's right. In, in a way right. where you were probably just like That's right. in the business head trying to like stay afloat all the time, totally. so to speak. But, totally. you know, it, but all of a sudden you realize that, you know, what, what your, what your place means to, to the people in your neighborhood and the, the, the even, even broader community. I know, I know people, I heard at the time that people were like, coming to Brooklyn from different places in the U.S. and, and you know, figuring out ways to give money to, like, local businesses and stuff. It's totally. crazy. I know. I know. And, and that's, you know, when things like this happen, you do understand the generosity and the greatness of humanity yeah. and how we are able to come together um, and help each other through rough times. But, yeah, it was, it was a very powerful lesson for me. Um, because I got into the business, I was like, hey, you know, this cocky cook, like, I could do this. Like, I'm going to do this. I'm going to cook my food and yeah. totally show off and be great. And, but, but the lesson that we learned just in the past 13 years, you know, how to be responsible business owners, you know, how mm-hmm. do you treat your, how do we take the problems innate in the industry and make it better? Not, you know, if not to like spread the gospel of like being on a, you know, a soapbox or, and say, this is how you do it. But just to, just to, um, affect change within our organization, within our family, our restaurant. And we have done that. So it really, um, you know, having children, I think is another big lesson for a lot of people, Mm -hmm. but, um, owning and operating, um, a business that you're passionate about the lessons are just limitless. I, I felt that way, like having a business before having children. Oh yeah, that I, I feel like I was I was prepared so well for the, all, the so many so many different dynamics of of just family life, and you know the the fact that you know your 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 role and your opinion matters only as much as the the the, the greater whole of things. Totally, totally. Um, and and because you know both of us Ben and I come from two very s- distinct uh, family histories but close family units yeah. we really embrace this idea that the good fork family the employees and people who make it possible like we love that this is another family that yeah. you know we could um support and be a part of and 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 Ben and I He's an extrovert. I'm an introvert, but we're two very social creatures, yeah. and, and we love to be a part of things, and and we like to think outside of the box. Um, and uh, and and when the Good Fork opened, it attracted people sort of like us, you yeah, know, slightly younger artist types who got what we were trying to do. And so then this great community developed. But but the thing about Sandy, and when you go through a disaster like that, it does it does put everything in perspective, so that. We're not just like this island just floating around just by ourselves. And it, we do affect change, you know, in the yeah. community. And if we were to completely perish, then it would just not only affect us and our family, but the community at large. Yeah. And that's what I didn't understand before, Sandy. And, and you and I have talked about this, but it's it's like 
these these places that in in our you know in, in our communities that we go to right. are are extensions of of our homes like i mean and especially in a place like new york where you don't have very much home space right. but you go there it's almost like your 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 place to relax and let down and for someone to recognize you right. for who you are and and the food is like a right. part of that. It's like this whole, you know, it's 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 a big thing that doesn't get that much acknowledgement. No, it doesn't. It's that Cheers effect, right? That yeah. sitcom in the eighties, yeah, right? Yeah. Norm goes, everybody, hey, hey. guys, and it, it it is. I thought that just sort of you know lived in television or this sort of fantasy thing, but it is it is true. It is so much um, about the greater um, scenario. So and and I think Red Hook is very specific neighborhood mm-hmm. uh, because you can't get through to Red Hook to get to anywhere you have to want to be there like I said um, so it creates um, a community of people who just want to be there mm-hmm. and I think especially in a large city like New York you go to different neighborhoods and places because the rent is cheap or you know you have a friend living there it, it's not as specifically like okay I just want to live in that neighborhood yeah, yeah. Um, maybe it's so now but back then it was interesting to meet uh, the fellow neighbors and, and the reasons why they all wanted to sort of leave the city behind without mm-hmm. leaving it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and because the feel of Red Hook is so different from anywhere, and I could, I vouch for that because I've lived in so many different neighborhoods, different boroughs. Um, but you will, but you will choose a neighborhood sometimes based on your local conveniences, and I think restaurants sure. are actually one of those things. I totally. mean, we chose our place in Minneapolis now. Right. based on that. And actually if if I think about it, I came to in in 99 I came to this area and 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 wow. Um Smith Street had like three restaurants. I think right. Tabak was was there already. Right. There was a I think there was a Thai restaurant that's no longer there. Yeah. Uncle Fo. Uncle Fo, I remember. <laughs> I remember that. And one other like a some something else maybe. I mean there's an, a maybe an old Italian restaurant that had been there for a long time. There was and Patois, it, there was there was like Patois, the, yeah, the grocery yeah. which was recognized. But by, that was later even. It was it was it was, it was a little bit later. But but yeah, but, that, was, but attracted me like there was something about knowing that I had within a few blocks of where I lived that I could right. just you know walk down there and that didn't exist quite as much in when, in Minneapolis at the time or in you know, any of these mid, big mid-sized cities in the US just didn't have this the walkable you know, place to go, and I think that's that's now becoming a much bigger draw of where people want to sort of position sure, themselves. Sure, So when when you know the real estate companies locally, they they reach out to us like, hey, could we get a photo? And we want to promote your restaurant, and and that's sort of the carrot that they dangle. Uh-huh. And I was like, wow, we're the carrot that they dangle so that they could. What do move? they give you for that? Nothing, <laughs> but um, <laughs> but it's nice to be thought of that way. That somehow yeah, the yeah. Good Fork or even Insa and Gowanus, you know, um, could be a draw. For people to to want to be in that neighborhood, yeah. you know that's that's cool. And but we had the reverse approach though. Like, let's find this neighborhood. Yes, it doesn't have any real restaurants or conveniences. Nothing that we really need yeah. exists here. But can we be sort of a pioneering spirit, isn't it? Yeah. And I and I found that most of um and 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 I'm not saying that you know Ben and us Ben and I moving there, you know what like 19 years ago that we were the pioneers, not at all. Red Hook has such a a unique history of sort of being um, shunned by the rest of the city um, and having gone through so many uh, troubles economically. um, People were abandoning houses left and right because it became a liability Mm -hmm. and there were fires and then then TV shows sort of made fun of like, if you see old like Law and Order episodes, you know, Briscoe and Green, they they find dead bodies floating right by, (laughs) right in Red Hook. Ding, ding, Red Hook. You know, and the story begins. And and today it's a a very different community, but when we moved there, it still had that sort of quality. But there were people there... um, way before us and and my next door neighbor um she raised eight of her children there she's now in her 80s and uh i mean the the place just historically is just magical you know and it's role in the revolutionary war and and just so much Um, all those buildings down there are just incredible they're gorgeous it was a very hopping port you know Mm -hmm. um 
what is that movie with Marlon Brando? On the Waterfront? On the Waterfront yeah. was supposedly about Red about Oak. That area, yeah. And the Longshoreman Bars, that's what, that's what Sonny's, Sonny's was. So so there's still these little vignettes of stories that exist yeah. and, and, and romantic, you know, dodo heads like me and Ben are like, let's move there and open a restaurant. <laughs> yeah. And that, to me, it was selfish for us. But it really, it was sort of meant to be. Like yeah. we wanted to be a part of this kooky community and affect some sort of change, whether we knew it or not. Um, but it's this idea of like doing something that maybe no one else is doing that interested us. Yeah. And the Good Fork, honestly, if it, if it if it was in different part of Brooklyn or some other city, it, it, the, the history of it obviously would be completely different. Like we would be having a different conversation. Yeah. But... It became what it became because because of where it is. It sort of defined the good fork. Red Hook does. Can you talk at all about your your next venture? I can. I can. So timeline-wise, we opened the good fork in 2006. Um, we had a couple of kids. <laughs> and then we didn't open our sophomore project called Insa, which is a Korean barbecue place, um, until 2015. Um, The book came out... It's been three years already? It's been three years (laughs) already. And and the cookbook came out in 2016, um, and the sort of the follow-up book, um, not related totally to The Good Fork, is uh, Korean Home Cooking, which just came out last month. Um, Was that kind of inspired by stuff that you had to with Insa? Totally inspired by everything to do with Insa and my and my sort of soul searching. I think personally. Speaking speaking of soul, didn't you guys go to uh, Korea last? We did. We did. How how long had it been since you were there? Eighteen years. I had been there in eighteen years. So I was there my late twenties. Just sort of backpacking and trying to get to know. And this was that was before I started cooking. Um, right before actually, I gave myself a little bit of time to, to sort of find out if that's indeed what I wanted to do. So it had been 18 years and like I said, 18 years filled with lots of fun events. And you brought Um, the kids with you? And I, and we brought our kids, um, their first time and Ben's first time. Oh, really? Yeah. And he, it was his biggest joke. He's like, I have, I have two Korean biracial children. I own a (laughs) Korean restaurant. I've never been to Korea. (laughs) This is a shame. So we changed that last year and also that trip also informed in uh the cookbook as well i did obviously a lot of research I, when I, I was I, there i figured yeah but it really started with uh our designs for insa and me um coming up with a uh, a menu for this traditional korean barbecue place but i wanted to do so much more than just barbecue yeah um so a lot of the recipes that are in the cookbook um you know, we serve at INSA, but a lot of it is focused on my memories of, you know, food that I ate that my grandmother made and my mother made back in Korea. You, um, you came to the States when? You were well, I was 10. 10, okay. So in my memory, it's like before, you know, like Korea was sort of like a dreamlike state. Mm, yeah, was, like, yeah. was I really there for 10 years, yeah. you know? Um, but but in writing this book, it all sort of came flooding back. And it was a very oh, cathartic, that's, that's amazing really awesome. experience to sort of, you know, um, come to this full circle of like who I am as a person, as a Korean American, mm-hmm. as a mother that has biracial children yeah, that's yeah. living in sort of, you know, um, living in sort of two cultures or many, many cultures right. since we're in New York City. Um, and as a professional chef, you know. Um, having trained in sort of the European techniques. And now, you know, I own this restaurant that is totally traditional, authentic Korean. So there was a lot of lesson learned, um, and I wanted to sort of put it all down on paper. And it made sense that this cookbook come um, two years, three years after INSA. So, and we didn't want to call it INSA cookbook because it's not everything based on that. Yeah, right, right. And I want it to be a beautiful cookbook, um, that sort of is a primer for people to understand Korean food and, and cuisine. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we have beautiful photos in there taken by my friends, Zach and Bouge, who also live in Red Hook. Um, and Abrams published it. 
and they have a superb team. So the design is beautiful. And so I've gotten a really great, I've gotten many great feedbacks about the cookbook. Yeah. So that feels good. Um, but yeah, it's this whole, this whole journey that sort of everything sort of full circle always. That's awesome. Yeah, it is really great. It is really great. So, so your next what? what so, you, what the, are so you I'm leading do now? up to this next project. Um, my husband and I, and along with our, our partner Sinjin Frizzell, who owns Fort Defiance. And by the way, I, I thought you like three years ago you told me like I'm not doing this again. I know, I know. Isn't that awful? <laughs> it's I know. We just never learn, uh, yeah. but it's exciting. And let me yeah. tell you about this. The, the and, and honestly, three years ago, and that was the truth, Jeremy. When I said to you, "I'm done. Like yep. this is it. I'm just going to maintain yep. um, too much on the plate." But this opportunity came about when Sinjin wanted to open his sophomore project. He has Fort Defiance in Red Hook, right, right, very great place, and he is a drink specialist. And um, he lived, does he live down there too? Yeah, and in fact, we've been friends for years and years. Yeah. He lived in the same build our house actually. Um, so he was our our friend that we partied with in in, in Red Hook, yeah, um, yeah. and he also worked at the Good Fork for, for a little <laughs> right. bit. Yeah, so so he's like family. Yeah. And um, anyway, so he wanted to open he wants he wanted to open a cocktail bar called the Sunken Harbor Club in downtown Brooklyn, and he has been eyeing downtown Brooklyn for like couple of years now he's yeah. like there's all these high rises yeah. it's changing there's opportunity there and and you know he had this whole business you know model set up for this amazing cocktail bar that would have you know some snacks and food and he asked me if i would consult on that and i said of course mm-hmm. and ben said you know i would even help you build it i think it's going to do really well so the two boys go out and look at some real estate and Sinjin wanted to find sort of an out-of-the-way place, like maybe on the second floor of a building, hmm. something a little tucked away, like finding a treasure, right? Yeah. Part and parcel of what he wanted to present at the Sunken Harbor Club. Yeah. Um, and so they look at this space above some store, uh, downtown Brooklyn, and it just is not right. And then the real estate agent says, you know what, I have a beautiful space that I want to show you. And so they walk over, they turn the corner onto Fulton Street, and uh, and the cross street it says Red Hook Lanes, and Ben took notice of that. It's like, oh, the cross street says Red Hook Lanes. That's weird. So the, the agent opens the door, and they're standing in the middle of Gage and Tolner, oh, yeah. which is a historic oyster and yep. chop house that um, is landmarked. So when you go in there, you see the original gas lamps, the original tapestry, the original woodwork the gilded mirrors, like the whole thing is there because it was uh, landmarked um, like 30 years ago or something like that. And g- given Ben's taste for the old things, all that stuff. That's right. <laughs> and yeah, all three of us are like yeah. old things. Yeah, yeah this yeah. is so cool. And, 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 you know, Sinjin definitely is a history buff and, you know, we, three of us are very much, um, into finding things that are unique and really respecting history. Mm-hmm. Um, that is what lured all of us to Red Hook. Um, and that is what sort of opened our eyes to the possibilities of Gage and Tolner. So the two dudes see this space. They totally get super excited about it. And when I see them next, and I say, oh, so how was that space that you saw on the second floor of whatever building? Like, oh, forget that space. You know what we saw? We saw Gage and Toner. That's what we're going to do. We're going to reopen Gage and Toner. (laughs) And I started laughing. I was like, this is just like sending two little boys out for a quart of milk, and they come home dragging a cow. (laughs) Like, look what I found, Ma. But once I saw the space, I just was in love and and we said this has to come back again it's not about opening an oyster chop house anywhere it's about yeah. this site specific yeah, location so that is so is so steeped in history edna lewis cooked there she was you know the amazing you know african american woman yeah. chef she doesn't she passed away um a long time ago but but she was she hummed the kitchen like uh-huh. in her last days actually wow. um so Dude, just crazy since 18, 1879. And it stopped being a restaurant in on Valentine's Day 2004. And since then, it's been an Arby's, TGI Friday, what? clothing store. <laughs> oh, oh yeah, God. nail salon, like you name it. 
but they're never able to do whoever comes in as a tenant they could never change the interior because it is landmarked so the only logical thing is for somebody to bring this restaurant back to its full glory and why not three independent Brooklyn restaurateurs yeah. that like to think outside of the box. Can you, can um, you keep the name? Well, we're looking into that, yeah. and it would be great um, if we could keep the name, and we're hoping that we could keep the name. But if not, you know, we're, we have some other possibilities, mm-hmm. but it is, everybody's, I think a lot of people, I shouldn't say everybody has heard of it, but I think most people, yeah. if you talk about Gage and Tone, they'll say, all right, that restaurant. Yeah. Especially people of our generation mm-hmm. that maybe came to New York in the 90s or late 80s, you yeah. know, like you, you have memories of it. Um, for me, it was a restaurant that I, they had a huge billboard on Flatbush Avenue, oldest restaurant in Brooklyn, mm-hmm. come to whatever, check out Gage and Toner. That's what, that's what I remember. That's right. And I remember seeing like, I want to go to that restaurant. And then all of a sudden I read in the newspaper that... It's an Arby's. And I'm like, what? How could they take a historic oh. landmark place like that and make it make it into Arby's? And Arby's only lasted like six, six, seven months, something like yeah. that. Um, and I think people were always sort of afraid of the slow development of downtown Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. But I think you know it's always about seizing the moment. And three of us feel that it's it's the right time. It's, so it does seem to be happening. Yeah. So so we're at the fundraising. We're towards the end of our fundraising um, time. And, uh, and a lot of uh, we're selling shares uh, to this company mm-hmm. that we want to um, invite people who want to participate in, in having this project come back. Uh, financially, we all think that it's going to be, you know, nothing is guaranteed and restaurants can be tricky. Right. It's, they say it's not the best investment, you know, mm-hmm. idea, but there is something about this space. There is something about the possibility of bringing Gage and Toner back. And if we do it right, it could be another success story like the Good Fork or I, I, INSA. I love that you're, that you, when I saw you guys were doing that, I was, I, I was thinking, you know, it's, because of these conversations that you and I have had over the years, I feel like there's there's something about inviting the community to like that's right invest in their own community. Like totally. is really what it comes down to. Totally, and that's one of the reasons why there's um, the investment raise, the equity raise. You know, the, the investment uh, funding right now is two. There are two flat platforms that mm-hmm. we're we're offering to people. One is obviously equity, where if you want to buy a share of the company, then you know this is your company mm-hmm. for life. Yep. Um, and you will reap the benefits, you know, of how it does. And then the other platform is an online investment platform. Investment. It's not like Go, GoFundMe or Kickstarter. It's mm-hmm. not donations. Yeah. This is where um, the platform is uh, smaller. It's bigger, but but the amount of uh, potential investment is smaller. So you could What's small minimum. Could, minimum is one thousand dollars. That's so cool. It's so cool, right? And so we have over three hundred people so far. That has invested on this platform called wefunder.com mm-hmm. slash Gage and Tolner. And if you go there, you could see exactly what we're trying to do, our mission statement, um, your partial business plan, and uh, the exact idea of why and how and who is going to bring this back. And so the idea that 300 people, and we don't even know, like, okay, some are family members, mm-hmm. but like only a handful and the rest is all about people who just know Gage and Toner they have very much like how we were talking yeah. about the Good Fork they have memories of Gage and Toner oh we got married at City Hall and had the reception at Gage and Toner mm, back yeah, 50 yeah. years ago you know here's my thousand dollars good luck to you and and so this is this is an investment platform um Again, crowdsourcing and, and funding. And then and and then it's about reaching the larger audience, right? Mm-hmm. So it serves us both ways. It raises funds as well as um, getting the word out that this restaurant needs to come back. So, and if you want to participate, here are ways that you can do it. So, That's so cool. it's great. And all the stories that we hear and read on WeFunder, it's just amazing. Like the family members of the original Gage and Tolner. So it's started by two guys. Gage and Tolner, mm-hmm. and their descendants, like their great grandchildren, are investing. <laughs> yes, wow, and they live. So awesome. They live not in in Brooklyn now, but it's amazing. Like, it's just it's just incredible. So, it is site specific. 
it is this opportunity. It's not like three of us are itching to open a oyster chop house anywhere in yeah. the city. Yeah. It is this or bust. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so hopefully, hopefully we'll um, button everything up in the next two months. <laughs> we'll sign the lease. We'll get to work. You know, uh, fixing up the interior just a little bit. Yeah. In in um, uh, with the help of Landmark Commission, and uh, and maybe in a year we'll have a restaurant. That's, you know, that's so, so that's great. that's the project. That's the project that we're working on now, um, and it's fun. It's super fun, and and for me, the, this idea of bringing back classic dishes and making them really um, presenting in a way that is a little updated, but yeah. they're all del- they're classics for yeah, a reason. Yeah. Stuff that people crave, yeah. um, and they could be as simple as the perfect cream spinach, you know, to go with your mutton chop. Right. Um, or if you don't eat meat, then I want to offer great salads, and you know, still work with lots of vendors and farmers that I have developed a relationship with over the years, and just really create another community mm-hmm. where you could get great food. Um, and great service and create even more memories. So that's it's, so, it's, it's that's kind so of romantic, isn't I, it? I love it. Yeah. So, so if you weren't a uh, a chef and entrepreneur, what, what what else would you be in in this life? Well, you know, I I I wanted to, I when I was little, I always wanted to be a teacher. Hmm. And now that I there's some sort of recognition in, in the work that I do. I do volunteer with some organizations and teaching young kids. And so I have a little bit of experience teaching cooking. Um, so that's something that I could do, but it's not necessarily answering your question. What would I be doing if I didn't do this? Right. That's the question. If, if, if you weren't, uh, if you, if you weren't uh, cooking, if you, if you were any, any, anything else, in 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 this life or in your next life in, you? in my next life i would like to just create art honestly yeah, yeah. um you and i talked about this yeah. sort of value of art and i think you know restaurants to me it, they, it is culinary art you know it is consumable art yeah it's art that disappears in the nanoseconds after you know preparing it for hours and hours that the thought of <clears throat> just creating art you know, in the medium of paintings or sculpture. Um, that's what I would love to come back as and not have to, not a starving artist. I don't want to <laughs> be one of those. <laughs> but I just want to, like, make beautiful art. Um, yeah. and, and well, There's something about what you do already that's kind of in that realm. I yeah. mean, I, you, you must put dishes together sometimes and just be like, Yeah, sometimes I do. Sometimes I do. Um but it is this idea of working with my hands yeah. that is really appealing. Um, there was a moment where I thought, you know, having a very sort of traditional Korean immigrant upbringing that I would, you know, ended up at an Ivy League college. And after that, you go to law school. And and uh, and that's when I decided to go to culinary school when I didn't, when I just kept procrastinating. Um, mm-hmm. I'd taken the LSATs and I was like, you know, now I have to apply to law school. But is that really what I want to be doing for That's the rest funny. of my I was, life? I was a little on the same track. I thought yeah. I wanted to go into law. I was an English major. Right. Didn't, I, didn't, I didn't quite know. Right. And, and after college, I just sort of hovered around for a right. while doing things. And then right. I got, fell into me, you know, science and medicine. For some reason, I right. just got totally drawn into all these things. But there's right. something about the art of healing the, totally. the, that, that is like also it connects you back to the you know our, our our nature and all those things i i could just feel like that was all part of my curiosity it's like a there's a kind of a spiritual quest that's part of that and and it was in the music that i was doing before too i always felt like that was a connection to it that's and, right and so in in some ways you know i feel like a lot of things for me have come full circle where i'm I'm just incorporating all these pieces together now. And, you know, totally. this is my next life, I think. <laughs> totally. Exactly. Exactly. Why wait for the next life, right? Right, right. And so that's the thing. I don't want to like, you know, my like I said, my grandmother was a Buddhist and I, there's a lot of Buddhist tenets in philosophy in me. Yeah. And I believe in, in reincarnation and coming back. You know, I often joke that Ben was a like old Korean woman is like, like <laughs> former life. That's where I get along so great. Um, but I do believe in it. And so I, I don't want to wait. It, we, I, you know, but for the most part, we only live this life once. And so I want to be an artist. 
when I grow up. Yeah. You know what I mean? Maybe after restaurants, you know? Maybe my days are sort of numbered in it. You know, it is a stressful job, and sometimes yeah. I do think about pursuing other things. And yeah. I don't think you're ever too old to pursue anything that you truly want to pursue. Right. Um, so, so, yeah, maybe well, there you, is. I think you already are an artist. Oh, thank you. Well, it is. It, there's a lot of art form um, aspects of what we do that I do appreciate and recognize. Um, but I don't know, like that brooding artist in the studio, like covered in paint and like, I don't know, just expressing emotion, you know, onto onto a, a canvas. I've seen you yeah. in the kitchen before. There's <laughs> some brooding going on. Some, I think it's a solo work. Splatters of different things. Yeah. Well, after all this talk about after all this talk about community building and you know being so special to be a part of that, sometimes I do I do long for a quiet time. Yeah. And I think yeah. that's the allure of like my idea of what an artist's life is. Yeah. It's like spending that sort of quality time alone, um, and that that would be a good retirement, actually. Yeah. You know. You know, if I ever get there. Yeah. <laughs> Projects and projects. So you're the best, Zoe. I'm so th thanks for thanks for doing this with me. Are you kidding me? This is super fun. This is super fun. And uh, if uh, your cookbook, your newest cookbook, is called Korean Home Cooking. Korean Home Cooking. Yeah, published by Abrams, and hopefully it's it's in all the bookstores. Uh, it's available online. Online. But you know, talking about community, I like yeah. when people go out and support their local bookstores. I saw there's a new bookstore up on uh, Smith Smith Street. Yeah, I awesome. gave I gave a a little talk and uh, a signing there books of magic it's called so if you're yeah in these parts of brooklyn then books of magic on smith they definitely carry it all right everybody go, go check out the cookbook and the good fork cookbook is also out there yeah it's out there and the good fork restaurant and insa yeah and look out for gage and toner all right a little bit awesome all right thanks so much it's super fun thanks jeremy so he came folks Always so much fun to talk to her. Amazing to hear her story. And so many things I, I knew, but so many things I didn't know. The one thing that came to me from listening back to this conversation is the importance of art. Art is a big part of our world. It, it creates the fabric that is our world. And to appreciate it is to live more fully. In Zoe's case, the art disappears into the mouth of its intended audience. And they are left with its effects and its experience. People like Zoe and Ben improve our communities by dedicating their artistry to them and by taking care of its people. As Zoe's Hurricane Sandy tale proves, businesses need patrons, but the community needs them just as much. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. Uh, let me know your thoughts on this topic and conversation. You can always email me at jeremy at highwaytohealthpodcast.com. Thanks for listening. Be good to yourself. Be kind to each other and take care of your planet. Be well, my friends. If you enjoyed podcasts like this, you should check out our other shows on Health Podcast Network. For example, Beyond the Paper Gown, hosted by Dr. Mitzi Krakover helps people think critically about women's health issues, encouraging them to question and explore the complexities of healthcare systems, scientific advancements, and societal norms. There's a really cool episode that you should check out called Midday Menopause App. And that's about how AI and sensor technology can provide personalized interventions to manage menopause symptoms effectively. Check out Beyond the Paper Gown on your favorite podcast platform or visit healthpodcastnetwork.com.